are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. I'd actually encourage you in your devotional reading as we're going through this series, read through the letter a couple of times. I think it would give you a good sense of how Titus would have read it. I think it may help you in this series. So let's read these verses together. This is Titus chapter 1, starting with verse 5 and going through verse 16. Hear this, church. Paul writes, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject truth. To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Each time I read this text, I'm encouraged by by what the Lord wants his church to be like. And if we remember that Paul is writing um, to his disciple Titus here, right? And so he's writing to him. PJ led us through the first verses of this letter a couple weeks ago. Paul identifies himself as a servant of God. Paul says that he wants us to have a type of knowledge not, not that leads to arrogance, but that leads to godliness. And we loved just that warmth with which Paul addressed Titus. Do you remember that from a couple weeks ago? He called Titus, my true son in our common faith. My true son. So, so Paul is a spiritual father to Titus. And so now Paul is leaving Titus on the island of Crete with a big task ahead of him. Crete's a a large Greek island in the Mediterranean Sea with with many towns. And so Paul is sailing away. Titus is still there. And verse 5 tells us really clearly why Titus is still there. Paul writes to him and says, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. So, so I think this letter helps us catch a glimpse of what, of what God intends his church to be like, of this, this glimpse of this beautiful local church happening on Crete. But there is a problem for Titus, right? There's a problem that I think that most likely we can relate to. We can relate to it because we notice this problem in any organization, including the church or in any group of people. And the problem for Titus 
is that there are troublemakers in Crete, right? There are difficult people in Crete, just as there are in any organization. That'd be a good spot for an amen, maybe if you were trying to lead any group of people in, in 2021, right? If you organize a group uh, for any reason, you'll find this out, that troublemakers will arise. And so that's what Paul explains to Titus in verse 10 through 16. He says in verse 10, there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It's necessary to silence them. They're ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. So he's warning um, Paul is warning Titus about this specific group, and particularly verses 10 through 16. Each time I read that, I'm just struck by the severity of it, right? Like Paul is not mincing words right here. He says they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. That Paul knew what it was like to face opposition from difficult people. And he knew what it was like to, to face opposition from this specific group. You know, it's interesting, though, in the New Testament, the, the troublemakers that you primarily see aren't, aren't who you might think of at first. That primarily in the New Testament, the troublemakers in the church are religious people. And so there's this group that Paul is warning Titus about, and he calls them the, the circumcision party. Elsewhere, they're called Judaizers. They're a group of Jewish people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but they're saying you also had to obey ceremonial laws of Moses. You need to eat a certain diet. You need to be circumcised. You need to do these extra things in addition to following Christ. So in order to really please God, church, in order to really have full acceptance, these guys are saying you need Christ, but you also need to be circumcised. I can't help but think as Paul is writing this letter to Titus towards the end of his ministry, I just wonder if he has in mind what he wrote to the Galatian church. This interaction certainly calls to my mind the book of Galatians, where Paul is addressing this same threat to the gospel from this same group, this circumcision group. And in that instance, actually, this group has led Peter. Do you remember this? Has led Peter into hypocrisy. It's also led Barnabas astray in Galatians. So in Galatians 2, I don't know if you remember this, but Peter is, is sitting down, he's fellowshipping, he's eating with Gentile converts as he should, um, but then the circumcision party comes around and he starts to distance himself from them in order to please these guys. And so Paul calls him out to his face and says, that's hypocrisy, Peter, so much so that Barnabas had even been led astray. And so this circumcision group, what they were doing is they were pressing their cultural boundary markers onto these Gentile converts, saying, you must be circumcised to be truly accepted by God. That's sure, you need Christ, but you also need to conform to our culture, and you also need um, to conform to our ways to please God. And folks, that's not the gospel, is it? That's not the gospel, is it, church? You all with me this morning? The main point of the book of Galatians is that all ethnicities, all cultures, all classes of people sit down equally at the table of God. 
Because we're made right with God based on Christ's sufficient sacrifice. It's not our culture, not our heritage, not any work of righteousness, but the work of Christ. The gospel is not Jesus plus anything, not Jesus plus any form of external righteousness. We're not made right with God by what we do. The gospels were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Isn't that right, church? And that's incredibly good news this morning. So Paul's writing to his son saying, Titus, be ready. Be ready. There's influential, persuasive, religious people on this island. And they're coming, but they're going to distort the gospel because they don't know Jesus. So, son, they're particularly dangerous because they look and they sound like spiritual people. But they're rebellious people. They're full of empty talk and deception. They're promoting myths. They're ruining entire households. They're stirring up division, all while claiming to be Christ followers. So Crete seems like a difficult place for these churches to flourish. But Titus, I need your help organizing churches that preach the gospel in Crete. So what is Titus to do? How does Paul instruct him? What is God's solution for his church on Crete? I think we see it in verses 6 through 9. His solution is leaders of character. You see, God loves his church, doesn't he? he it's difficult to overstate how much love and care God has for the church. The church is God's plan A. It's the means through which he's going to bring the good news of Christ to the ends of the earth, where, where God's going to gather people from every tribe and tongue and nation through the church. The church is Jesus' bride, right? That Christ sacrificially loves his bride. He's in a covenant relationship with his bride. God loves the church. And he cares how it's led. And he wants it to be stewarded well. And for him, it's all about character. It's about character. That's what he wants in leaders. If you go to uh, any bookstore um, one of the largest sections in that bookstore will be a leadership uh, section. On, on there's many, there's been much ink spilled over uh, writing about leadership and leadership philosophies and leadership advice. I know I've benefited from leadership books I've read. Uh, I've read. I know many of you um, would say that also. But it's interesting this morning we're, we're looking at what God desires for leadership of the church. And it, and it may not look like exactly what we expect. You know, we're not given in Scripture this for leaders this certain standard of education. Uh, we're not given this, this certain standard of, of talent or ability. These things may be beneficial but not required. If you remember many of the disciples, the first ones were uneducated men, right? Paul, even though he was, he was educated, it says he wasn't winsome or charismatic in person. So God's intention for what good leadership looks like, it might be different than what we initially think. So we're going to look at verses 6 through 9 that cover the, the qualification of elders. And as we're looking through this, you may be thinking, okay, like how does this really apply to me? I have no desire to be a pastor or elder. You know, what, what is my, like how does this apply to me? I want to say a couple things to you. 
Firstly, these qualities that we look at, I think these are qualities that every believer should hope to see cultivated in their life, that essentially this list is, is fruits of the Spirit, that we should be praying that the Lord cultivates this in our life, that this is a, a, this type of character, the Word says, is a requirement for elders, but it's an invitation for all of us. And then secondly, church, we're entering into a season, really practically a manual, uh, where we'll be asking God to direct us to the next lead pastor of our church. And so it's important that we're looking for the right things. That we can mistakenly place our hope in things that in the, autonomy, in the economy of God aren't that important. That we need to be valuing and praying for things that God's word says is important. And so this text lists both qualifications and disqualifications. I don't think it's an exhaustive list. It's interesting, you may want to read this as well, um, that Paul gives a very similar list to his other disciple, Timothy, over in 1 Timothy 3. So if you want to flip over this week at some point and read that list, it's a very similar, not identical, but, but a lot of overlap between um, Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. And just for clarification as we move forward, for us at Emmanuel, as we see the roles, um, or we see the words elder and pastor and overseer used in the New Testament, we believe those are referring to the same office. So elders are pastors, pastors are elders. I know we come from different traditions, and so just wanted to clarify that. So let's look at these disqualifications for elders first. We'll look at those first in verse 7. An elders not to be arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money. Let's put a little flesh on each of these. So not arrogant. Some versions say this, not overbearing, not full of ego, maybe not really concerned with this image, portraying this image of ourselves, not having to win a debate or, or not running over others in dialogue, but able to listen. Doesn't have to have all the answers. Not arrogant, not hot-tempered, so not touchy, not, not easily offended. That being easily offended is actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. Flying off the handle often. Do people have to walk on eggshells around us? Not argumentative. The book of Proverbs tells us a fool is quick to quarrel measured and charitable, not an excessive drinker. Some versions say not a drunkard, so not lacking self-control as it pertains to alcohol, but, but practicing moderation and measuredness. Not a bully. Some versions say not violent, so what happens when someone is disagreed with? Is this person able to receive a corrective word? We have to have our way. Are we drawn, unhealthily drawn to just verbal jousts and unhealthy debates? Not greedy for money. You know, scripture is clear that, that, that elders need to be compensated. If, if they are a paid elder, they need to be compensated well. And there's, a, there's a principle of generosity, but it's saying here they, the elders need to pursue dishonest gain. You know, I'm reminded of what Christ said. You can't serve two masters, right? So, so we can't uh, be concern, uh, concerned with the pursuit of money and possessions and then also serve Christ. So I'd be asking questions like, do we demonstrate sacrificial giving? Are our lives marked by contentment? Are we willing to live below our means so we can be generous to others? 
I think those are good questions to ask. And I'm reading these disqualifications, and, and, I, and I'm thinking, you know, truthfully, pastors can be bullies. Pastors can be full of ego. Pastors can be argumentative. And truthfully, in spite of all those, those same pastors can build a big church, potentially. Build a big following, potentially. And as I've been looking over this text all week, my heart has gone out to to people, maybe some of you, to individuals who have endured spiritual hurt or spiritual abuse or trauma, who have been manipulated or even deceived by leaders in the church. You see, elders or pastors, they're under shepherds, they're stewards, but even the best ones will let you down, church. And so I want to encourage you towards the good shepherd, towards the one who won't let you down, towards the one who is safe to be with, to the one who cares for you, church. He sees you this morning. He sees your wounds. He's good. You can trust him. In fact, he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. And for the next few minutes, we're going to talk about the way that he wants his church to be cared for. And I want you to think, what must God be like? What must he be like if this is the type of leadership he wants? Let's look in verse 6 together. Now the qualifications. We looked at disqualifications. Now qualifications. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. We just read this. We'll read it again. Verse 7. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money. Then verse 8. But hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. So initially, I'm struck by a couple of things through these verses, that, that these, these qualifications, right, they're almost exclusively character-based. They're not talent-based. I'm also struck by this, that character, like these, these character qualifications that are, that are listed, they're difficult, if not impossible, to observe during, during one hour or two hours on a Sunday morning, Right? They're not measured at 10 a.m. on Sundays, but this type of character is seen through how an individual lives outside of Sunday in all of their life. So Paul tells Titus and elders to be blameless. This is difficult. Some versions render this above reproach. I think that's helpful. Surely it can't mean sinless, morally perfect. No one's qualified. There's only one who's perfect. Greek renders this free from accusation. There's this, this overarching, unquestioned integrity here, above reproach. And so leaders need to be above reproach, or what? Or it can discredit the church. It can damage the church's gospel effectiveness. And so the first place that Paul wants an elder to be above reproach is probably the most personal arena possible. You see, the best litmus test for our character is not how we perform in front of others. The best litmus test for our character is actually, and this goes for all of us, in our homes. How are we around those who know us best? How are we, what do we act like in front of the ones that we can't perform in front of? And so he goes into relationship with family. He says, the elders be the husband 
of one wife. And so this literally is translated a one-woman man. And so we do believe at Emmanuel this office is reserved for men, but this means much more than just a one-woman man, like not a polygamist, right? This means faithful, devoted, honoring to his spouse in her presence and not in her presence. Not flirtatious, not Mr. Wandering Eye, but above reproach in relationships. Just a caveat, I don't think this is a requirement saying elders have to be married, but if they are, this is what it needs to look like. So the husband of one wife, this is difficult, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellions. This is, this is delicate, right? I think part of the, the terrifying thing of being a parent is that we can't, we can't force or we can't can't produce faith in our kids, right? That's where we're depending and we're praying on the Lord to work in their lives. And so we can't make a child have faith in Christ. And I think what's in mind here is that a leader is, is diligent in raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, disciplining them, not letting them run wild, pointing them to Christ. I think the way Paul says it to Timothy is helpful. He says it to Timothy like this. An elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So he asks this question, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So one's household should be intentional and thoughtful because it's a demonstration of character. In church, I think you probably know this. I think our church does a great job of this. And you've probably experienced this in other fellowships, but when we put pressure on elders' families or pastors' families or particularly their children to be perfect, um, that's one of the worst things we can do for them. And so not perfection. That's not the standard here. But above reproach, modeling repentance, modeling Christ-like care in the home with wife and children. Verse 8 tells us the elders to be hospitable. We've talked about this a couple months ago in the book of Hebrews, but, but generous, open, caring for others, using their home in this context for the glory of God, to care for the outsider, a love for the outsider. This connects with, with how we view what God has done on our behalf. And this is incredibly important, I believe, Obviously, God thinks it's important for every church, I think particularly for Emmanuel Church. And in our individualistic culture, we're trying to model a missional lifestyle, and it's difficult because it runs counter to our culture, and it's really hard. We need a lot of grace here because it doesn't come naturally for us. But hospitable, loving the outsider, loving what is good is the next thing. So rejoicing in truth and goodness and beauty, looking at an individual's life and just seeing God's grace all over it. Sensible, so not impulsive, not quick to react, but, but slow to speak. Is that true of us? Quick to listen. Righteous and holy. So this godly character, right? A Christ-like life, an ethical individual. Self-controlled, some versions say disciplined. So that overall, this character of self-control, not controlled by or just thrown about by whims of passion. There's a lot here. And so why is this kind of character so important? Why does this matter? Well, 
Unfortunately, pastors can be experts the best at putting on a good face on Sunday, at performing, at, at lacking vulnerability, and we've got to be careful not to encourage this. We're guilty of elevating talent and ability over character and faithfulness. In the name of what? Church growth? We love a dynamic personality who can draw a crowd, has the ability to fill up a room. We can build a ministry on this one person's brand. And it's sobering right now, church. It's sobering because we're in this cultural moment where we're witnessing a reckoning, aren't we? A cleansing of the church. Revelations of pastors guilty of abusing their power, of taking advantage of the vulnerable, of seeing pastors be exposed for any number of abuses and all sorts of arrogant, narcissistic ways of leading, using their power to cover up these sins. We're reaping a harvest of elevating individuals because of their great talent and giving them a large platform with very little accountability, only to realize that their ability doesn't match their character. And that's not God's way, is it? That's not what he wants for his church. He loves his church too much. So I've been thinking this week about different pastors that have, have led me through the years and jotting some names down pastors, youth pastors, different people who've been influential for me. And I had this beautiful thought, I had this beautiful thought that I could read their names to you and 95% of you, their names would mean absolutely nothing to you. They are not celebrity pastors. They are not published. They are not speaking at big conferences telling everyone else how you too can have the success that I've had. They're not living extravagantly they're not famous, but they're full of character. They're above reproach. They're humble. They're faithful. Can anybody relate to that? Can anybody relate to that? If you can, you should thank God that you can. Elders need to be full of character so they can function as a leader to encourage, to build up, to teach, to correct when needed. That's what verse 9 tells us. Verse 9 says an elder needs to hold to the faithful messages taught so that he'll be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. So holding to the faithful message, this unwavering commitment to the gospel message, tethered to the truth, anchored in God's word, the solid understanding of the scriptures. You see, the message that, that pastors are entrusted with or that all believers are charged to uphold, it's not ours to reinvent or to shape according to our preferences or our own demands to edit it like we want to. The book of Jude tells us to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Paul tells Timothy, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trusted faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's this idea that, that, that we don't invent it, but we receive and then we pass it on. So an elder needs to be able to teach. That's really the only um, ability that's specifically mentioned, to encourage with sound teaching, to give clear and accurate faithful instruction from God's Word. 
And so an elder needs to be able to do this. Why? So that he can build up and encourage and feed the church. I think it's helpful to hear to think about the role of a shepherd that's used all throughout Scripture. And, and I like thinking about the good shepherd. Christ's perfect example. So there are under-shepherds in his church. And he calls them to follow Christ's example by nourishing the church through the ministry of the word. So that's what we're praying it happens on Sunday morning. That when we stand up here and, and speak from God's word, what we're hoping is as an under-shepherd does that, that the, that the Spirit takes and empowers and blesses that effort. And that we're praying that when the church hears that, that you'll be nourished and you'll start hearing not the voice of the under-shepherd, but, but you'll be hearing the voice of the good shepherd speaking to you. John 10 says he calls us by name. He's good. So we need to be able to encourage the church with sound teaching and we need to be able to refute those who contradict the gospel. And for Titus specifically, this was this circumcision party, this circumcision group that was creating all of this division in Crete. I love the way John Calvin says that he says a pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering sheep and another for driving away wolves and thieves. In conclusion, church, it's interesting to me that as important and as, as central, as vital as the local church is, the Bible is really silent on a lot of the things about how a church is to be run. So the, the specific building in which a church meets in or what it needs to be like is not mentioned. The specific worship style is not mentioned. The, the particular programs or specific ministries offered aren't really spoken to, but... But leaders with character are written about, and it is important to God. And so, again, I want you to be thinking, what must God be like if he wants his church to be cared for like this? So, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to go home today with just more information about elder qualifications. I want you to go home thinking about the design of the local church. I want you to go home grateful for a God who wants you to be in a faith family that nurtures you, that feeds you, that cares for you, that supports you, that encourages you, that that's his design, and be grateful for that. I want you to go home with the voice of the good shepherd in your ears. He calls us by name. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. I'm praying for you, church, that as we go through this text, that your soul would be restored. You see, this picture of godly character, it's a requirement for elders. It's an invitation for us all, right? There's so much goodness, and there's so much flourishing to be found in following Christ, that there's so much joy and contentment in our lives when they're marked by goodness and self-control and love for one another, when we live in Christ's ways. So let's pray now, church. Let's thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for his beautiful design of the local church. And let's ask him in all of us to increasingly grow in grace. Let's ask him to increasingly produce Christ-like character in each one of us. So let's pray, church. Father, we are grateful, Lord, just for the way in which you love us. Lord, we're grateful that when you called us to yourself, Lord, that you called us into a family. Father, we have been redeemed, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, who help us, who encourage us.
Lord, we thank you for calling us into this faith family. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would continue working in us individually and continue working in our church. Father, we pray for our hearts now. Lord, they're prone to wonder. Father, we see sin and we see selfishness creep up. Lord, it's so subtle our pride is. Lord, help us grow in grace this morning. Spirit, we ask that you would change hearts. God, I'm praying for my brothers and sisters who are sitting here under this word this morning, praying that it would be restorative to them. Lord, that as they hear these words about the local church, Father, that they would, they would feel just a, a desire and a love and a, a, um, a desire to, uh, to serve the local church, just welling up in them. Lord, I pray that they would be just um, confronted uh, freshly by, by how much you love and care about us, by the way in which you want us to grow in Christ's likeness and, and the way you've set it up for us to be intimately into one another's lives, practicing the one another's of Scripture. Father, you're so good to us. You're so kind to us. You are a shepherd who leads us well. Father, when others let us down, when others hurt, Father, we can, we can go to you knowing that you will not, Father, that you are here for us, that you are steadfast and good. Father, help us in this season of our church. Lord, help us to desire the things that you would like for us to have. Father, help us to lean on one another. Help us to point one another to Christ. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to emmanuelwithanibirmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.